Justinian reigned as emperor of the Roman Empire between 527 and 565. He is one of the most famous and one of the most controversial Roman emperors, and for good reason. Under his administration, 1,000 years of Roman law was codified, he attempted to purge corruption from the bureaucracy, he instituted religious reforms, spent massive amounts of money rebuilding portions of the empire, and harnessing the power of nature through construction projects. And of course, launching military campaigns to bring the territories of the Western Empire back into the fold. But he is well known for one other reason as well, and arguably this is what he is most well known for. It was during the reign of Justinian, in 541, that something happened in the Mediterranean town of Pelusium. People started to get sick. For the next eight years, what would become known as the Plague of Justinian would ravage the ancient world, and although it would eventually subside, it would return again and again until the 700s. There was also something else going on here, which occurred just before the plague showed up. The bizarre weather of 536 AD. The historian Procopius recorded that, quote, During this year a most dreaded portent took place, for the sun gave forth its light without brightness, and it seemed exceedingly like the sun in eclipse, for the beams it shed were not clear. So what was this disease? Well, the short answer is that the plague was caused by Ursinia pestis, the same bacteria that caused the infamous Black Death of medieval Europe in the 14th century, and another plague outbreak in the late 19th century. Now, how do we know this? From the 6th century, we have reports of the pandemic, but like many primary sources, they are somewhat vague. Reading these sources is not like reading a modern autopsy report compiled according to set lines and using precise medical terminology. That's if the sources even mention the plague at all. Many will often have just a line or two, maybe a paragraph, noting that a pestilence of some kind has arrived in a town or a village. And it is not at all easy to read these accounts from hundreds of years ago which talk about a pandemic or a disease of some kind and immediately pinpoint what it was. Diseases evolve and change, and in some cases, they die out. It's believed that the plague of Cyprian was some particularly virulent form of Ebola, but we're not sure. So, while the descriptions have come down to us sort of sound like Black Death, bubonic plague, it was not at all certain that it was the Black Death, until 2013, when modern laboratory techniques were able to actually get the bacteria's DNA from the skeletons of the victims. So, because of that, this is an area of study that is progressing rapidly, with information constantly becoming outdated by the year, or in some cases even by the month. This is happening to a couple different areas of Roman history, and we're getting new sources that were not available even 10 years ago, but the methodologies still need to be worked out and developed. A perfect example would be two of the sources I'm using for this video. Kyle Harper's The Fate of Rome, Climate, Disease, and the End of an Empire was published in 2017, and it was really the first book-length study to use all of this new information, and I'm leaning on it heavily for a reason, but the section on the plague has been tweaked and corrected a bit by newer information which was provided in an article by Peter Saris, New Approaches to the Plague of Justinian, published in 2021, just four years later, which questions how deadly the plague was. Usually, when you want to learn about the views on a particular topic taken by scholars, you can find a book or a long essay which covers the historiography and the sources. 
An example of this would be Problems in the History of Ancient Greece, written by Donald Kagan, one of the foremost scholars of ancient Greece in the world, but the volume which does this for the Plague of Justinian, Plague and the End of Antiquity, edited by Lester Little, and which has contributions from numerous scholars in the field, did not even exist until 2008. And now, with the employment of laboratory techniques and methods from the hard sciences, even that synthesis is being outdated. So, to reiterate, this is one particular area of study that is changing very quickly. The bacterium known as Yersinia pestis has been the agent of three historic pandemics. The first erupted in the reign of Justinian. The medieval pandemic started with the Black Death in 1346 to 1353 and lasted nearly half a millennium. A third pandemic erupted in 1894 in Yunnan, China, and spread globally. These three episodes are, in fact, colossal accidents. Humans are merely incidental victims caught in the crossfire of what is really a disease of rodents. From the bacterium's perspective, we are sorry hosts, since we are prone to die before the concentration of bacteria in our blood becomes sufficient for fleas to carry it to future victims. Most of the time, a human being infected with plague is a terminus, not a transmitter. Today, Yersinia pestis is enzootic, permanently established in an animal population, permanently established around the world, in rodent colonies. It is out there, lurking. There are 18 different species of this bacteria, with 15 being harmless, and we probably come into contact with them all the time because it lives in the soil, but three are deadly to humans, with Yersinia pestis being probably the worst out of the three. So what makes this particular one different? The long and short of it is that it has a specific gene which enables it to live in the guts of fleas and not be killed, so as it multiplies, it blocks the gut of the flea and basically causes it to starve. Because the flea is starving, it bites anything, particularly rats, and it then regurgitates the bacteria back into the animal, and when those animals are in close contact with humans, humans are bit by the fleas. That causes the swollen, blackened lymph nodes known as buboes, which are one of the most well-known characteristics of bubonic plague. The genes which allow the bacteria to behave like this are contained in plasmids floating bits of genetic material which exist outside the chromosome, and the key to it all is the acquisition of three different plasmids. The first, known as YPV, is shared with the other two forms of the bacteria deadly to mammals, and allows Yersinia pestis to inject protein into a host's cells and disable the immune system. The second, PPCP1, was acquired when Yersinia pestis diverged from Yersinia pseudotuberculosis approximately 55,000 years ago, and it enables Yersinia pestis to construct enzymes which allow it to attack the respiratory system and cause pneumonic plague. DNA testing on Bronze Age skeletons strongly suggests that this particular form of the plague has been with us for a very long time, but it still was not the infamous bubonic plague. That required the acquisition of one more plasmid, PMT1, which allows it to survive in the guts of fleas. With that development, Yersinia pestis was able to, potentially, become a very serious problem, because now it had the possibility of becoming a pandemic. Because it was now inhabiting the guts of fleas, it was transmitted into the skin rather than the lungs when the flea bit something, the result being the infection of the lymph nodes, which causes the swollen masses known as bubos, hence bubonic plague. The earliest date we have for all three plasmids being present is about 950 BC, 
and for most of its modern history, as far as science is able to tell, it is very likely native, if we want to term it that, to the Tibetan Plateau. So how did it travel from there to the Roman Empire, and from the Roman Empire to at least modern-day Germany, specifically a few sites in Bavaria, and to East Anglia in England? The standard explanation is that the plague was carried by the black rat and its associated parasite, the oriental rat flea, and as the rats spread by hitching a ride on ships or caravans or some other means, the infected animals died, and the fleas hopped to humans, and thus the plague of Justinian occurred, as well as the later black death of the 14th century. DNA evidence, although not yet perfect, has been both confirming and significantly revising this picture, and it appears to be an Afro-Eurasian problem, in the words of historian Peter Saris, rather than simply a Mediterranean issue. And this is where the weather events of the 530s come into play. 535 or 536 has sometimes been called the worst year to be alive, and one book from the 1990s, David Keyes' Catastrophe, attempts to argue, although it's not entirely convincing, that the conditions of this year spurred the world towards modernity. The Roman climactic optimum, a general period of warmer temperatures and milder climate, which did a great deal to facilitate the rise of the Roman Empire, ended around the year 150. Between 150 and about 450, the climate, especially in the Mediterranean, became significantly more variable. In the latter half of those three centuries, the North Atlantic Oscillation, the pressure systems present over the Atlantic, flipped with the result that winter storms were displaced towards the south. A belt of land running from Spain eastwards to Anatolia and into Central Asia became significantly drier. There are very strong indications that this caused severe problems on the Eurasian steppe and likely was a factor in driving Hunnic expansion in the 300s. The Romans did notice this, and it mattered because it influenced philosophies about how the state should actually be governed. There were those who felt that nature was stable, long-lasting, and that the Roman Empire should be a reflection of that stability and that order. But there were those who saw the storms and the changes over only a few generations as signs that nature was anything but stable, and therefore, the Roman state should be governed not by unmoving tradition, but by vigorous emperors bent on reform. And no emperor embodied this belief in reform better than Justinian. Textual evidence, such as Cassiodorus's Variae and Procopius's History of the Wars, mention that in the mid-530s, the sun was covered by a vast dust veil. The sun did not give off very much light, it grew colder, and crops failed. We have similar reports from places as close as Ireland and as far away as China and Japan. Using a combination of ice core samples and dendrochronology, it has been conclusively demonstrated that in about 535, there was a massive volcanic eruption somewhere in the Northern Hemisphere. A few years later, in 539, there was another eruption, and this one we can at least pinpoint to Central America. Probably it was in El Salvador, but that's not entirely certain. And then in 541 and 547, there were at least two other large eruptions. Tree ring evidence testifies that in Europe, in 536, temperatures fell on average about 2.5 degrees Celsius, and in 540, temperatures fell globally by at least 3 degrees Celsius. While that does not sound like a very large drop, 
The decrease in average temperature, combined with the dust that was ejected into the atmosphere by the volcanoes, caused enough environmental problems that harvests appear to have been significantly smaller, with the Irish Annals of Ulster recording a failure of bread in 536, and in China, the history of the northern dynasties, which spans 386 to 618, records drought, famine, mass death, and cannibalism in at least one province in 536. In Japan, the Nihon Shoki tells of peasants starving of cold, and, if it can be believed, and many historians are highly skeptical, the Annals of Wales record that in 537, or maybe 539, it depends how you date it, a battle occurred at a place named Camlin, where a man named Arthur fell. So, in general, this appears to have been an era of strife. But while the decade 536 to 545 was the coldest on record for the past 2,000 years, the consequences were not at first readily apparent, especially in the Roman world, and there was more to come. Using the data stored within beryllium isotopes, scientists have been able to determine that, independent of the volcanic dust that was thrown into the air in the 530s, solar activity peaked around 500, and then declined into the 6th and the early 7th centuries, so just at the same time that these eruptions and climatic shifts were occurring, the sun actually began to eject less heat towards the planet. Between about 530 and about 680, globally, temperatures dropped and local weather patterns shifted. Italy began to experience significantly more rain to the point that it almost became torrential. In Anatolia, winters became more intense, while the Mediterranean coast of Africa became much more arid. What this likely caused, or at least partially caused, was human migration, and it's been suggested that we should read increasing reports of conflict in the late antique border zone of Africa in light of these developments. In the Near East, textual reports of increasing aridification and crop failure have now been substantiated by this climatological data, and we can thus read the large-scale building program of Justinian in a new light. On the one hand, it was a political attempt to rebuild the Roman Empire to its former glory, but on the other hand, it was a literal attempt to repair sudden, widespread damage. In order to do that, the Romans required a robust economy, which of course meant trade. After a lull in the 3rd century, Roman trade in the Red Sea and Indian Ocean rebounded in late antiquity. The southern end of the Red Sea, on either side of the Strait of Bab al-Mandab, was a hot zone of geopolitical tension. The powerful Aksumite kingdom in Ethiopia stared across at the rival kingdoms of southern Arabia. The contrast between Roman consumer demand on the one hand and the deficit of Roman power on the other was a fact of life for traders in the Indian Ocean. The Romans could barely control the Red Sea, their watery backyard. Power projection into the ocean beyond was simply beyond the means of the empire. The real scale of this commerce eludes us. The Romans fought to control an island in the Red Sea where the state levied a toll on imports from India. The revenue was described as massive. The scattered finds of late Roman coins in India stretch from the 4th century down to the reign of Justinian. Maybe most revealing of all is the sudden importance of the Red Sea theater in the alternating phases of cold and hot war between Romans and Persians. The Christian Aksumite kingdom of Ethiopia was ascendant in the early 6th century. The Himyarite kingdom of South Arabia converted to Judaism, of an unusually militant stripe. 
Religious animus stoked ancient rivalry, and in 525, the Oxumites invaded the Himyarite kingdom with Roman military aid. The conflict drew in the great powers. Over the next two decades, the Ethiopians and the Himyarites were clients of the Romans and the Persians. A generation later, Muhammad was born into this world, which has now been evocatively described as the crucible of Islam. Religion, politics, and commerce intertwined to make this region strategically valuable. The Romans were keen to maintain a stable bridgehead into the waters beyond. So, this was an incredibly important region, and it would appear that trade networks played a major role in allowing the plague of Justinian to reach the Roman Empire. At the time, India did not just refer to the subcontinent, but to the entire region affected by the trade, from Aksum to the actual kingdoms of ancient India. The current thinking, based on recorded relations between climate alterations and plague outbreaks in China, is that those same relations held during antiquity. So what is believed to have occurred is that portions of China and eastern Central Asia in the early 6th century became significantly wetter, allowing more vegetation to grow, and thus allowing the rodent populations to expand. The subsequent eruptions and cold snap of the 530s forced that increased population to migrate in search of food, and they carried their fleas and the bacteria Yersinia pestis with them. We know that plague does not like to operate in higher temperatures, so the cooling of the 530s may have helped amplify the spread of the disease. All of this is likely to be revised in the coming decade as further studies are conducted, but the textual evidence makes it abundantly clear that the plague was first detected in the Roman town of Pelusium, just north of the Red Sea port of Clisma, where all of this trade would have come in. The understanding that India, in the Roman imagination, referred to more than just the subcontinent is significant here because there are some historians who think that, rather than being carried by rats coming from South Asia, the plague was carried northwards by African gerbils, migrating due to the weather of the 530s, which, if that is the case, to the Romans, still would have come from India. Either way, in 541, the Black Death made its appearance in the Roman world, driven by a combination of societal interconnectivity and a brief change in climate that allowed the deadly disease to hop from its native host to humans. There are three primary ways, and thus three different forms of the plague, in which it infects and kills its host. Form number one is airborne, entering the lungs and causing mnemonic plague. Form number two is the far more famous one, bubonic plague, spread via flea bites and causing swollen black nodes known as bubos. The last form is septicemic plague, the poisoning of the blood when Yersinia pestis directly enters the circulatory system. From the written text, mnemonic plague does not appear to have been a major form that Yersinia pestis took in the first pandemic, but textual and DNA sources strongly suggest that its primary form was bubonic, and based on the more extensive records of the second plague pandemic during the 14th century, historians tend to view this outbreak with certain expectations and limitations in mind. The disease was spread quickly by waterborne transport and much more slowly over land, and Procopius, one of our main sources for the event, notes that ghost ships, adrift upon the sea with their crews all dead or dying, was a common sight, and that the disease often spread inland from the coasts. Everywhere it went, Eusinia pestis ravaged the rodent colonies, and once they were all dead, the fleas and the germs they carried moved on to humans. The poor were often hit first because they lived in closer proximity to rats, but there were probably some exceptions to that pattern. 
nobody, no matter their economic or social status, was immune. Constantinople, with its population of about 500,000, lost approximately 230,000 people to the disease, with a maximum rate eventually reached of close to 20,000 dying per day at the height of the outbreak. While it at first seems almost too gruesome to be true, it actually matches up fairly well with similar casualty rates for the second plague pandemic, caused by the same bacteria. Outside of Constantinople, our knowledge of the plague is extremely bad. In many cases, the sources give a one-line description, but in many more, they are simply silent. So what can we say about the plague and its effects on the Roman world? We know that several of the major cities of the eastern Mediterranean were devastated, with the sources stating that Alexandria was ruined and deserted. Ordinarily, disease in the ancient world was something of a localized phenomenon, the Antonine and the Cyprianic plagues being the exception here, because the diseases which afflicted the ancient world were reliant on human contact. Thus, there are often descriptions of disease being extremely deadly, but the outbreaks were localized. Eusinia pestis, however, because it can travel via rodent and other animal populations before leaping to humans, did not have this restriction, and there are scattered reports of small, isolated villages being afflicted just the same as the large cities. Eventually, so many died that crops rotted in the fields. The Western Mediterranean and Western Europe are more difficult to deal with, but just like the East, there does not appear to be much of a pattern outside of major cities serving as jumping-off points for the sickness. Our major source for the West is Gregory of Tours, who tells us that the plague reached the shores of Gaul in about 543, making landfall at Arles, and moving northwards along the rivers, bypassing several major areas, including Claremont, and heading into Germany and crossing the Channel, entering the British Isles by at least 544. And all across Western Europe, we find evidence of mass graves from the same period, attesting to the presence of Eusinia pestis, even when the documents are silent. Archaeologically, the 4th century was a time of growth and population rebound, with sites all across the Roman world either growing or being newly established. This trend continued into the 5th century, and although the breakup of the Western Empire towards the end of that century did cause this demographic growth to shudder, it did not halt it. The archaeological evidence, however, takes a very sudden, sharp downturn in the middle of the 6th century, right when Justinian's Wars of Reconquest, the Plague, and the climate issues all converged. It is for that reason that many historians of the late empire have shifted the period for the fall from the 5th century to a period spanning the end of the 5th century right up until the start of the 7th. So how many people died of this pandemic? The major issue confronting us is that we lack population statistics for the period, so any estimate is at most going to be a well-educated guess. The climate issues of the 530s and the wars caused crop failures and famines, especially in Italy, and the plague thus tore through a Mediterranean population that was both hungry and weak. Eventually, grain shipments to Constantinople stop altogether, and they ceased for at least 100 years. One of our sources claims that not 1 in 1,000 survived, but this is very likely an exaggeration. Recent work has attempted to look at the Black Death of the Middle Ages for a baseline of mortality, and those estimates, roughly 40-60% of the medieval population, do in fact seem to roughly equate what we know of the death toll of late antiquity. Therefore, depending on which historian you read, 
the death toll given will be anywhere from 20 to upwards of 50 million people. The sharp decline in population caused wheat prices across the Mediterranean to collapse, and the economy was sent into a tailspin. Trade dropped off, and production became localized in what medievalist Chris Wickham terms radical material simplification. Justinian issued gold coins which fell below the target range of 172nd of a pound, the first major attempt at currency manipulation since the early 300s during the time of Constantine. A severe monetary crisis shook the empire, and it started the cycle of demographic and fiscal problems which led to military recruitment issues and thus the ability to defend the state was now in peril. In 559, the winter was unseasonably cold and the Danube River froze to an extent not seen before. Justinian called his general, Belisarius, out of retirement. The man who led Justinian's armies in Italy had one last task. Agathias, continuing the work of Procopius, recorded that an army of Kutrigers, a nomadic people from the steppe, had crossed the river and was approaching Constantinople. With the Roman armies away fighting on the frontiers, Belisarius had to hastily assemble a force of only 300 soldiers augmented by bands of peasants. Somehow, he managed to turn them back, but the point of stressing the number of troops in the text is that Rome's once great army, numbering somewhere around 600,000, had fallen by the late 6th century to a mere 150,000, and the force Belisarius had to muster to defend the state against an emergency assault pales in comparison to anything the Romans would have been able to do in centuries past. The primary sources, particularly from Italy, stress the idea of decline and fall above and beyond anything written in the 4th and 5th centuries, as well as containing startling trends in apocalyptic thinking. Although the state would survive, the glory of the Roman Empire was, it was made clear, gone. The chaos of war, climate change, and plague ended the ancient world forever, and heralded the coming of the Middle Ages.